Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dan Curry. He is an artist, filmmaker, martial artist, musician whose work has been seen in over a hundred feature films and television productions. He has had 18 years on various iterations of Star Trek, all the way through from Next Gen uh, to Deep Space Nine, Voyager Enterprise, where he's been the visual effects supervisor and producer, title designer, conceptual artist, martial art choreographer, and director who's earned eight primetime Emmys. So we're back with Dan Curry right now. And uh, I want to remind you that this episode is in part brought to you by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the Awesome Music Project campaign will go to music and mental health research initiatives. And you can find out more about the beautiful Awesome Music Project coffee table book um, in all the usual places you can find books. The book features stories from amazing folks like astronauts Chris Hatfield, award-winning artists uh, like uh, Michael Bublé, Sarah McLaughlin, and even there's a bloke in there called Dove Barron. Don't know what he's in there for. Um, also, Music Project and the AMP Foundation can be found at www.theawesomemusicproject.com. Let's dive back in with Dan Curry, my guest, and we're going to dive into the mastication round where I get to ask my guest um, a question that they pick without knowing what the question is. And we find out where that particular, uh, uh, what, <laughs> what little rabbit hole we go down there. So Dan, are you ready for the mastication round? Absolutely. Fabulous. Pick a number between one and 26 and I'll tell you the question that goes along with it. The sacred number 12. The sacred number 12. Number 12. To you, what does a what does a dragon represent? A dream of power from our species. A dream of power from our species. Tell, tell us what you mean by that. That's interesting. I like that. Well, they can fly. They have powers beyond human capabilities. They can breathe fire. They have intelligence. They can talk. Uh, they have greed. They reflect certain aspects of the human condition, but on a level of power that is beyond any human individual's capabilities. They also, according to the ancient astronaut theorists, uh, may represent the perceptions of non-technological primitive people as uh, of flying machines that have uh, fiery uh, exhaust. Oh, yeah. The, uh, ancient astronaut people think that the ancient uh, humans saw a spaceship coming in with a fiery exhaust and they thought that's a dragon and it can fly. And mm. they made a loud noise. So the roar of a dragon comes from there. And also, uh, human imagination tends to be capable of separating things from their actual scale and their original purpose. So somebody who saw a small lizard might imagine how this would be if it were 50 times larger. Do you, do you, when you look at even your own art and what you do, do you, do you uh, focus in on that, that understanding that we, we transfer form, uh, uh, scale? Yes. Uh, for example, when I go to the hardware store, 
I'll look at say plumbing supplies and I'm not looking at plumbing supplies, but I'm looking at technical objects that could be big, small. And that's how I made a lot of the guest spaceships of the week for Star Trek. When we were using physical models, I'd go in and say, oh, well, this would be really cool. We need a spaceship that represents a species of a certain nature. So I say, well, a shampoo bottle would make a good hull, but if I put a couple of toy submarines on the side and a, a roll-on deodorant bottle in the front and something else on the top, it would be really cool. And those kind of spaceships were uh, used frequently uh, in the early days of Next Generation when our budgets were so limited. So literally uh, a spaceship that I might see on the screen was a shampoo bottle with a couple of toy submarines glued to it or whatever it might be. That's right. And they would That's catch cool. light. And it's the uh, uh, poverty-stricken man's version of kit bashing. <laughs> Why do you think Star Trek has had such... I mean, you know, it's... Why do you think it's had so much longevity? Why do you think it's had so much appeal over time? I think Star Trek has resonated with audiences because it promises a future where as a species, we have our act together. We've <laughs> conquered poverty, we've conquered disease, and we've created a world where people can choose to become the best of what they can be. They mm. can follow their dreams. And so as a species by exploring in another and encountering other species, we're really going back to the the days of exploration in the 1500s and, and yep. earlier where people would explore. Star Trek also is able to allow us to look at human foibles from a distance and then recognize them in ourselves. There's a mm -hmm. wonderful episode in the original series where there are these two species on an alien planet who are at war and one side is half black, half white, yeah. Is white, but different sides are black and white. And it goes to Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels where there was a war over which end of a boiled egg to open. Yes. And yeah. it showed how silly and shallow our own issues of racism are. But Star Trek also offers a warning where the Borg especially are a very scary species because we are the Borg. Uh, mm -hmm. I became a Borg when I had a hip replacement. Um, yep. And we're technologically changing ourselves both through the potential of genetic engineering and medical science. So the Borg are humanity gone wrong. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and I've, I've actually used that as a, the, uh, the Borg as an analogy in my work. And I've, I've said, you know, part of the, where we are at this particular point in history, um, you know, is, is we are on the brink of resistance is futile. You know, you will be assimilated into the Borg with political correctness. Right. And that you, you know, your language patterns, which is, you know, 1984 and the thought beliefs, but, you know, the manifestation of it is a Borg mentality, this collective um, thinking that's got nothing to do with individuality 
whatsoever. And whether it's extreme right or extreme left, it doesn't, it, it is a Borg. It's, it's an extreme left Borg. It's an extreme right Borg. And there's no individuality in it. And I, I you know, it was one of the great things about, for me, when I watched Star Trek and looked at what the Borg is, and just uh, for those people who are not Star Trek people, tell them what the Borg is, just so that everybody can understand. The Borg are a humanoid species ruled by a queen, much like uh, the queen of a hive of insects or termites. Yeah. She refers to them all... as a hive, right? I'm sorry? They refer to them as the hive, don't they? They refer to it as the hive, and they have yeah. a hive mentality, and they all are interconnected technologically through means as if they've had their iPhones implanted in, inside their brains. Right. Which, which is where we we're going careful about and which is where we're going right we're going to be augmented i mean we are already augmented you're wearing glasses as we speak that's an augmentation you've had a hip replacement that's an augmentation and it's not a big leap to think that our technology will be inside of us that will go click and touch our ear and you know and and we'll pick up the cell phone that that's true and it's not far away no it's, I mean, this is one of the things about a lot of those things that, you know, we might have seen on Star Trek. I mean, like, you know, the, the, uh, the communicator in the original Star Trek was really uh, the Nokia phone with the flip phone. The, <laughs> like yeah, well, even the iPad, we had pads on the show yes. and yeah. our, our pads were plastic props with a little blue screen on them. Right. And then we would composite whatever they saw on it. And the the iPad and the other tablets that people use today are derived from the Star Trek imaginary pad. Do you we... do, do you think or do you see that um not necessarily in the context of Star Trek, um, but do you see that science fiction um catalyzes technology do you think i mean because we know you know you and i are both in the uh in a group uh involved in uh i'm trying to remember the name of the group what's the name of the group with uh overview we, institute the overview, yeah, the overview institute, right? so um you know and that you know we, we look at a lot of the things about you know the potential of the future and traveling to space etc but do you think that um we know, for instance, that uh, the Apollo um, astronauts and the technology that went into that is a lot of what we've integrated into our lives today. Do you think, though, that the science fiction creations, like you said, like the pads in Star Trek, influence the technology of development? Absolutely. There's always been a symbiotic relationship between science fiction and real science and mm -hmm. that goes back to ancient times tell us what you mean by that it's well if you look at the beowulf for example is really yep. a science fiction story yep and i've actually attempted to read it in middle english um whoa good luck with that wow. the uh, uh and uh, there was a roman author apuleius who wrote this uh, a novel about uh, called the golden ass or the golden donkey and it was about a man who is changed into a donkey and is forced to work in the arena hauling dead gladiators out of it and how he 
goes about freeing himself from that transmutation uh, and coming back into much more recent times you look at the work of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells yeah. and there's the relationship between the dreamers and the doers and the dreamers say well now that we know this let's how about if we could do that mm -hmm. and a good example of that is Fritz Lang did a movie called Woman on the Moon, and they show people landing on the moon and walking around with leather jackets and not much other protection, or even <laughs> earlier, um, George Melier's Voyage to the Moon, where they're walking around on the surface of the moon in top hats. And and when they realized, oh, there's nothing on the, there's no air on the moon, we need spacesuits. Well, then George Powell came along with Destination Moon, and they wore spacesuits. And mm -hmm. so... Each, each discovery of science inspires a dreamer to say, now that we know this, what if that? And right. then somebody sees that and is inspired by that dream, say, well, maybe I can make that real. I, I do programs with NASA once in a while where we talk about that symbiotic relationship. And right. I'll talk about the history of science fiction up to... Arthur C. Clarke, and then the real scientists who I am privileged to be in the same room with, uh, will talk about how science fiction inspired them and how many of them were inspired by Star Trek and Star mm -hmm. Wars uh, to pursue the sciences because they saw it on TV in a fictional context and say, I really want to go there. I want to be part of that. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think that, you know, I, I am a big proponent of the power of art and i think that uh, i i've written pieces on it and done stuff around advisory boards that i think every advisory board needs an artist on it because artists and when i say artists i want to be clear i'm not talking about painters they could be painters but they could just as easily be singers and songwriters or you know or any or dancers whatever it might be just people who are artistic because artists say what cannot be said artists express what cannot be expressed artists are beyond the the veil of political correctness um and and they they create a, a potential for a future a, a a vista that is is not seen yet and so in in creating these uh, futuristic realities like i said you know i remember being incredibly uh inspired by that first sci-fi movie you know and that woman who was aluminum or metal and you know and and then you know it was a science fiction silent movie uh, and then realizing you know and then going on seeing others other of those i still it's still my favorite category is science fiction um i think it 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 it's a great way of speaking to the psyche of us to speaking to the parts of us that are maybe repressed and, and and gives us an opportunity to have that voice and so i can totally see how it inspires forward but it also inspires inward well to reinforce what you just said in 1969 when i was still in the peace corps i'd been working up country and we were all told to 
grow our hair really long because we would captured by the pot that loud, tell them that you're a hippie and they'd let you go. Didn't work that well. A friend of mine spent two years in a bamboo cage, but um, we were occasionally summoned back to Bangkok to have a medical checkup. And I was summoned with a few other guys from my group. And by a coincidence, there was an event happening at the U.S. Embassy and we were the head of the Peace Corps invited us to go mm. with the promise of food because we'd been eating um, chicken embryos and uh, barbecued field rat. So we Literally. were eager to uh, attack a buffet. And it turned out that the Apollo astronauts were going on an around the world tour after the moon mission. And we were sitting in the corner in our scruffy clothes and stuffing our faces when a very healthy looking guy with short hair carrying a tray came over and said, can I sit with you guys? I'm tired of all these dignitaries. So he sat down and nobody knew who he was. And I was thinking this guy must be new in country because uh, he looks too healthy. And and it turned out it was Neil Armstrong and somebody figured out who it was and said, well, how was the moon anyway? And we had no newspapers. We hadn't seen any of the images. So we had no idea what anybody looked like. And one of the things that Mr. Armstrong said that has resonated with me since that moment was he always wished they had brought an artist with them of some sort to share the profundity of the transformational experience of being on the moon, how it changed their paradigm of reality, how they perceived themselves from that moment when they stepped out of the landing module and looked up and saw earth and saw the moon uh, surrounding them. And they felt, uh, the, uh, Mr. Armstrong felt that he couldn't really share that in a way that was meaningful because he didn't have the artistic gifts to make that available spiritually to other people. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That, that, that's a powerful story. Um, there's something, I mean, you know, you and I would, I think, both agree that, I mean, you, said, you even said it in, in part one, that the artist reveals something about themselves in their art. And, and therefore, you know, our context, our perception is the transformation, the transformation of our perception becomes the reality of the canvas using canvas as a, as a, a broad spectrum of what it might be. But there's still that capturing that doesn't take place in any other form. I mean, you know, you and I, or not you and I, somebody could go out with a camera and take a picture. Okay. But an artist who is a photographer can go out and take a picture of exactly the same scene and it's entirely different. And so that's kind of like Neil Armstrong trying to express what it was versus an artist coming back and saying what it was. And I'm not saying either is right or wrong, but it's, it's a, I think it's very different. That's, uh, that's certainly true. The, the artist has this power to 
inject his or her imagination and and perception of that phenomenon of being alive into the viewer or the listener. That's why music is so powerful because yeah. our our temporal existence is based on rhythm. Mm -hmm. Our hearts beat, we breathe. And so when rhythm is controlled through the art of music and then adding the additional elements of music, of melody and changing pitches, then suddenly it has the ability to touch us internally in ways that we don't even understand. And even the greatest musicians don't understand that. They, they just know it's true. They know it's within them. Uh, and I really want to come to the, to the music part actually in our next piece, because I know that you, you, you're a musician and you've designed uh, instruments, etc. Um, but, you know, I want to come back for a minute first here because I want to talk about that experience of, you know, you were, you were born and brought up where? Tell us again, you said it earlier. In Belrose, New York on the right. Nassau Queens border. Right. So was that a town, a city? Uh, what would that be for people who don't know? It was a working class neighborhood. Right. So and going from that working class neighborhood, which you've just flashed up on the screen for us. That's, that's my house. That's your house, right. So going from that to being in um, Northern Thailand, uh, living on barbecued field rats, talk to us about that, to say the least, cultural shock. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you didn't have a barbecued rat shop um, <laughs> in, in Queens where you could go and get a little snack. No, not, not really. <laughs> but for me, we had uh, the Belrose Theater was right at the end of our block. And yeah. I grew up uh, going to the movies all the time. And the movies was my escape into another world and looking mm -hmm. at the great adventure films in exotic places like uh, Burt Lancaster in, in Fiji in His Majesty O'Keefe or Tyrone Power in The, the Black Rose meeting... Uh, by am of the thousand eyes portrayed by Orson Welles and mm -hmm. seeing these incredible adventures in other places. I was hungry for that. So right. when I got to go to places like that in the Peace Corps, I was in heaven. I, right. I, for me, it was being in the best movie ever. But, but that's, again, there's the romance now, I always say to people, there's a great deal of difference between the romance or the glamorization of something versus, so, you know, like we can look at you, let's just take it as an example. We can look at you and go, oh, this guy was, you know, this, this amazing artist on Star Trek. That's glamour. It's wonderful. That doesn't include 20 hours a day taking details of painting. That doesn't include the, the grit, the hard work, the blood sweat and tears of a thing we look at you know the glamorous life of a, of a of a singer and we go oh you know you're on stage you get all you know the the long hours that never seeing a city and going on a, a, a 30 city tour but you actually never see the city you never see the daylight you know there's always a glamour to something versus a reality the glamour of being in, a, in an exotic place that's one thing in a movie another thing when you're there eating barbecued field rats. That's what I'm just really interested in. Well, the people were 
very different, but very welcoming. And being an American and there to perform a service, what our job was, each village, when they wanted a project, they would apply to the local community development department. Then the Thai government would provide materials and then somebody like me would provide the technical expertise to go in and we were trained to do this. And we would design and supervise the construction of small dams and bridges. I even got to design a marketplace one time and I built in a, a really cool sundial so they could always tell time. And every Very chance cool. I could, I would build a sundial. Even on one of the bridges, I built a sundial as an extension off one of the guardrails so that there some reason I was obsessed with sundials at the time. At the time. <laughs> but what I realized very quickly was these people had a culture and a way of life that had existed for a thousand years with very little change. And I was blessed to be in their presence and realized I would learn more from them than I could ever possibly give them. And my cockiness as, be, as being a uh, uh, a recent college graduate and thinking I knew everything uh, uh, quickly revealed the profundity of my ignorance. Mm -hmm. And I learned from those people the meaning of honor and wisdom and watching how they lived their lives in very close physical proximity to each other, but with incredible respect for each other's psychological privacy and the respect they gave them, each member of their society, whether they are very old and, and frail, they were respected for their wisdom and they were given age appropriate or physically appropriate tasks. Those with developmental challenges were, were treated with great kindness. And I learned the folly of some of our own culture and it, taught me the value of multiculturalism. And my wife is Thai and we have our own culture at home. We speak Thai at home and we have a family culture that's a mixture of Thai and, and American culture with a smatter of Irish culture thrown in. And <laughs> when, you, uh, when you think about that time, that, how long were you in Thailand? Five years. Five years. So obviously you learn to speak Thai. Your your wife is Thai. I'm assuming you met her there while you were there. Yeah, that is correct. Right. Um, and and you studied martial arts. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, when I first was in the Peace Corps, I noticed that the village men would gather almost every day, the young men and those who were interested, and there would be an old master who would teach martial arts. Mm -hmm. And we know it in our country as Muay Thai or Thai boxing, but it's way more than Thai boxing. Yeah. And they, each village had their own special version of it that was kept secret. Yeah. And they were very kind to the clumsy American who started too late in life to ever be good but they were willing to share what they knew. They appreciated that I was there and tried to be humble and not, not be a jerk around them and listen to them. And they appreciated my endeavors to learn the language. So 
that's where I began a serious study of martial arts. And each village I worked in, they would teach me more. And there were some men who were specialists with the dagger or the sword or the staff. Uh, and a dagger was the most poetic of weapons. Um, Tell us why. Uh, because it's, it's close. Uh, you have to be close to your opponent. You, there are all sorts of things you can do with it. Um, as a matter of fact, I designed for Star Trek, which we hardly ever used, what I consider the perfect fighting dagger. And That's for those beautiful. who can't see it, it's got a wavy blade inspired by the Malaysian or the Indonesian Chris yeah. and all sorts of grappling things. And it allows a palm assisted thrust, saber grip, a hammer grip, um, backhand. And so this is, um, and uh, we, I, and when I was living in Laos, I had a dagger teacher who had a friend who had a, a restaurant and we would go to the market and practice slicing sides of beef so we could learn how to move a blade through through meat through tissue without oh, snagging and how to glide it wow how long did so you were studying all these different martial arts for the for the five years you were there yeah yes and when ultimately i moved to bangkok and i worked on a thai language television series maitri and the magic chopsticks and I built an animation stand and did paper Monty Python cartoon animation. Oh, yes. And was able to do very Terry Gilliam, like, uh, wild elephant training, uh, Mekong river fishing, stuff like that. But uh, while I was in Bangkok, I was introduced to uh, Kim Young Soo, who was one of the great Taekwondo teachers. And so I studied with him for a long time and earned my black belt in Taekwondo in addition to the other stuff and had a, another teacher in Bangkok, Tang Chang, who had invented a new form of poetry, poetry concrete. And he was a brilliant artist who started out doing photo real paintings and wound up doing meditative art where he would surround himself with paint, sit in front of a canvas in lotus position and do all the painting by hand in abstract forms and they were incredibly powerful and beautiful paintings but he was also a master of iron palm he could take a pile of bricks slap the top and only the brick you pointed at would break he knew how to control the energy that perfectly he could wow. daggers as they flew by amazing man and so he was uh, my sword teacher he was your sword teacher what was it? I mean, was there a was there a large age gap between the two of you? Yes, he was a, an older man. Um, he was in his sixties at the time, and I was in my early twenties. So, by then you could speak the language. Oh, fluently, yes. Right, but I mean, you know, that's such a different. I mean, you know, as you know, I've traveled a lot and spent a lot of time in Asia, and it's such a vastly different culture. Um, and particularly to immerse yourself in as you were, you know, you were far more immersed than I was. Um, and putting that Western ego to the side, that is often, it's one of the things I noticed, like I, I mean, I was, I was also young. I was in my twenties too. And I noticed it was difficult for me, but I looked at, I noticed that 
for many Westerners, it was it was virtually impossible to 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 not look at them as not as smart as us civilized folks. I mean, it, it helped me to really understand the arrogance of the explorers. Oh, that's certainly true. Uh, that's something that Gene built into Star Trek as well with the prime directive. It was his yeah. reaction to colonialism and mm -hmm. the arrogance of Europeans showing up in another place and planting a flag and saying, it's ours now. Yeah. Just and we're here to civilize you. And there, there was an, an incident early in the Peace Corps that was very edifying. I had brought with me some Miller's Falls chisels that were made out of hard, highly tempered steel. And we were carving joinery to put posts together. And the locals were artists at it. They did wood joinery that I couldn't even possibly imagine. <laughs> and they were using a soft iron chisel. And I was showing off, well, look at this, how cool this is. And one of the craftsmen took it from me and he tried it out and he hammered a couple of things. Said, yeah, this is sharp, it's cool. How long does it take you to sharpen it? And well, and he said, well, watch this. Here's my soft iron one. And he did a couple of strokes, but he kept the sharpening stone with him and he do a couple of strokes. He said, so er almost every five minutes, I've got a brand new blade. Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah, there's so much to learn from that. And and it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because we kind of, in that way, we've come full circle because it's this whole idea of technology and advancement and so much being better. And that at the same time, maybe not. Maybe. Maybe not. Well, maybe it, not. Well, we're all, it taught me that we're all equal, but different. Just like yeah. everybody's art is equal, but different in, in a way. There's some work of art that are incredibly brilliant and yes that's not equal to a christmas card but in terms of the the cultural significance of art of the good art produced by a culture it, it's the same but different uh, yeah. i have to tell you about one one person whose name i never learned was very influential and when i lived in bangkok I lived on one side of the river in an area called Tonbury, but worked on another side of the river, Bangkok. And the real name for the city is Gruntep, and Bangkok is like Manhattan to Brooklyn. Right. And the one night I was late to catch the ferry across to my side of the river, and there was this old man who could have been 100, he could have been 60, impossible to tell. He was right. all weathered and leathery, and he had this beautiful uh, gray teak sampan-like boat that he sculled with an oar. And he said, he saw me looking around for the ferry, and I asked him, is the ferry done for the night? And he said, yeah, but I'll take you over. And the fact that I could speak the language, we started to chat. So every time I would cross the river late at night, I would look for him and sure. use the opportunity. And he had been a very rich businessman. And as a devout Buddhist, he chose poverty for his later years. And we would just 
go up river on one side and he'd make a few strokes, knew the current perfectly, and he would hit my dock on the other side of the river with only a few corrections during the course of crossing. Amazing. And we would have these discussions. He reminded me of the boat, uh, the boatman in Herman Hesse's book, Siddhartha, that he would just impart Buddhist wisdom to me in a way that only someone truly living it could do. And I've kept the wisdom he imparted to me all my life. Well, we're going to go a little bit over on this particular um, episode of this series. What What is one thing that stands out that he shared with you? The most important thing, and I believe it's absolutely true, is that we are the center of our own universes. And what we perceive as reality is as much as what we project upon it as it really is, and that no one can absolutely know the truth about anything. We can only kind of believe it. So it's folly and hubris to think that we actually know anything. I love that. I love that. Yeah, as you know, I studied Buddhism and lived with Buddhist monks. So uh, I get it. Thank you. All right, we are already at the end of episode two of this series with Dan Curry, who, of course, is uh, has a massive background um, as an artist, filmmaker, and martial artist, musician, and so many other things, and uh, a background in being 18 years with the various iterations of Star Trek. We're going to be back with Dan. We're going to talk about his music and much more in the next part so stay curious my friends stay curious we'll see you on the next episode